0: Say What? is the radio program of Protect Our Kids, which seeks to inform and equip concerned citizens about the looming crisis in American education. So listen in as your hosts, Mark Schneider and George Roska Jr. unpack the issues and organizations affecting our children. And now here's your hosts, Mark Schneider and George Roska Jr.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm George Roska. And we want to welcome you to today today's episode 24 of Say What, where we talk about the threats to our children in the public school system, and we are continuing from last week to talk about the understanding of the history of American education.
2: That's right, George. As we pointed out uh, last week, many Americans sort of assume that the education system that we have today is what's always been around, but as uh, you and I both know, that's our from the truth. Education was radically different, um, really, for the first 250 years of America's existence than what it is today.
1: And Mark, last week, I think we heard some shocking statistics. Uh, The one that really resonated with me was 90% literacy proficiency, you know, pre-compulsory education compared to 75% today in California. Yeah, that is shocking,
2: and it should be. And as we also pointed out last week, um, despite that 75% proficiency, we spend more per student on education than virtually every developed nation in the world. And for all the money that we're spending... Um, Our academic performance lags behind virtually every developed nation. And California, as we know, is in the bottom 20% when you compare it to other states across the country. So it's not a pretty picture.
1: Yeah, and and what's even more shocking about that that statistic is that you're not comparing apples to apples. 90% literacy proficiency was achieved by parents basically homeschooling versus the other 75% is barely achieved by billions and billions of dollars of our public tax dollars. And,
2: and they, they have our kids for seven hours a day, five days a week, and, and despite that fact that we are failing miserable in mm-hmm. teaching our, our kids to be competitive in this world. But you know, George, even more importantly, and we talked about this last week, was the emphasis of education uh, during America's founding, really, for the, for the first two centuries. And I think it's important to um, restate that again for today's program. So the, the purpose and order of emphasis for education, starting from the time when the Pilgrims and the Puritans first landed on the shores of the New World in 1620, all the way up until about 1840 was threefold. Number one, to educate children according to a biblical worldview. Number two, to provide a classical education focused on building good character. Character was the was the emphasis of education. Mm-hmm. And finally, number three, number three was to teach proficiency in what we call the three R's, reading, and writing, and arithmetic.
1: Those are some great priorities if we'd only have them today. If we only
2: have them today, we don't have them today because starting around 1950, the emphasis of education changed dramatically. So no longer was the biblical worldview Emphasized, it wasn't even talked about. It was completely thrown out of our, our public schools. And now the number one emphasis was to teach proficiency in the three R's, mm-hmm. which we failed miserably in. But secondarily, George, we started to see this emphasis on teaching a secular worldview, a whole worldview change. Such that today, now the complete emphasis is on teaching a secular worldview. That's number that's the number one goal in in public education or as we would argue a pagan worldview. Yep. It's turned into that. And only secondarily to teach proficiency in reading, writing, and
1: arithmetic. And, and we see that. I mean parents today when you go onto your school district's website, you know, what what is their uh, mission statement say what? What does their vision and strategic plan say? It's all about equity and uh, dismantling racism and dismantling systemic racism and a bunch of this, you know, um, very fluffy stuff.
2: Yeah, it's all fluffy, um, and it's not rooted in the experience of mankind over six thousand years, which the founders of our country uh, understood very well. Uh, and were represented in America's first textbooks going all the way back to the 17th century. In fact, as we stated uh, last week, the first widely known textbook, widely used textbook, was the Puritan New England Primer. Um, this was used by all the founders, and it was one of the most successful textbooks ever published in the United States. And the children learned the alphabet through these Christian homilies like, in Adams sallie all I liked to in this book attend. And that was only replaced by Noah Webster's Blueback Speller after 1790. Of course, Noah Webster was the schoolmaster to America. And again, um, he emphasized a biblical education. But mm-hmm. that, that was the focus. And then after 1840, the Blue Book was finally replaced itself with what is known today as the McGuffey Leader. This was the most successful uh, children's educational textbook of all time. It sold over 120 million copies. Wow. Homeschoolers are still using it today to educate their, their children. Now, McGuffey was a Christian theological teacher. And he correctly interpreted the goals of public schooling as primarily moral and spiritual and attempted to give schools a curriculum that would instill scriptural beliefs and manners in students. And he did that, such that by the mid-19th century, American children were among the best educated. And except for isolated pockets, most in the liberal Northeast, education was still privatized. all of that, as we know, started
1: to change in the mid 19th century. And you know, as we talk, I was—we're going to talk about some of these uh, names we've mentioned um, in quite a few of our past episodes as well, dealing with critical theory as a worldview. Um, but th- these names seem to pop up everywhere, over and over again.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why. How the ground was uh, prepared for things like critical race theory and comprehensive sexuality, education, historical revisionism to occur. I mean, the the ground had to be prepared. And it's these names that we're about to mention who prepared the ground. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, Inspired by the French Enlightenment, uh, uh, growing prosperity in the country, and, of course, an expanding government. Two men in particular, George, were instrumental in overthrowing uh, the biblical model of education. And those two men, of course, are Horace Mann and John Dewey. In fact, most people who have written about the decline of America's private education system point to Horace Mann as the agent by which it began to happen. Horace Mann was a Massachusetts state senator, but he went on to hold a seat in the House of Representatives. But that's not where his chief fame comes from. It comes from his influence in the public schools. Because in 1937, man became the first secretary of public education of any state in the U.S. Later, he, went, he would go on to hold a similar post in the federal government, secretary for the Department of Education. Wow. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, Mann was an avowed Unitarian. Um, They believed that people are inherently good, that the notion of sin is a myth, and that people can be psychologically developed through a humanist-oriented education. And Mann was also the, the first official appointed by the state to be given authority to oversee and administer American education. Uh, by far, one of the most damaging achievements was the advancement of what he called the normal school. Why was that? Well, the normal school had two objectives. Objective number one was to establish uniformity to education. So think about this. Every child is unique. Mm-hmm. Now, you have a family of growing children. Are all your children the same? No. Of course not. They all have different strengths, different weaknesses. Um, They have God-given attributes that need to be nourished, understood, and flourished, right? But in man's um, worldview, all children have to be viewed the same. They're part of the collective. And they have to be taught the same things. So that was number one, educational uniformity. Number two, and this is even more important, all education had to be brought under state control. Mm. Now, this was a stunning shift in American history because prior to this, parents were the primary authority for their children's education. They may have gone off to a private school, the famous one room schoolhouse, but parents were still in control. They were the ones who decided what children were going to be taught and how. But that changed, under Horace man. As described by the historian Samuel Blumenfeld, man believed the, norm, this is a quote, man believed the normal school to be the new instrumentality for the advancement of the race. The linking of state power to teacher education was indeed a crowning circumstance, a powerful engine to sway the public sentiment, the public morals, and the public religion more powerful than any other in the possession of government.
1: This, this sounds like I'm reading Ceausescu. <laughs>
2: yeah, so, you know, secular activists promoted the normal school, and this is where we first began to see compulsory education nationwide. Just one example is the Olmanites. Now, this is a group out of Boston who deceptively called themselves, quote, the friends of education, right? Mm-hmm. You always have this language. Now, Boston by this time was the center not only of compulsory education, but also for the Unitarians. But there was an ex-member of the Onites, uh, a man named Orestes Bronson, who revealed in his autobiography the group's true ways. And this, this is what he wrote. This is a quote. The great object was to get rid of Christianity and to convert our churches into halls of science. The plan was not to make open attacks on religion, but to establish a system of state, we said, quote, national schools, to which parents were to be compelled by law to send their children. The first thing to be done was to get this system of schools established.
1: Wow! Say what?
2: Say what? And established it was. Yeah, it, it gives you it gives you pause. But yeah. of course, it didn't end with Horace Mann because the second major figure in American education, uh, progressive American education, was John Dewey. In fact, he was considered the father of progressive education the goal of which was, and still is, to replace America's founding ideals and principles, which were based on the biblical worldview, with secular and collectivist-based values. Now, Dewey was a a humanist and founder of what's called functional psychology. He was a signer of the first humanist manifesto in 1933. And I think it's important for our audience to understand some of the... um, uh, statements in that manifesto, because they have had a profound influence in American education, so let's just read four of their doctrinal statements. Here's the first one: Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created,
1: which already modern science has disproved.
2: Completely disproved. You know, the Big Bang, Hubble, uh, the redshift, and mm-hmm. the stars has completely disprove the universe itself existing but it's important to understand this mindset right it's mm-hmm. secular man is the center of the universe he's the measure of all things it still pervades our educational system today even though the science behind what the humanist believes has been totally disproven. so that's number one number two Humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values or human morals, mm-hmm. okay? So that, that's number two. Number three, this is a quote right out of the Humanist Manifesto of 1933. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. We wonder why the scope and purpose of education has changed. It's not a mystery, George. It was written in these documents mm-hmm. by these progressives. And finally, this is again, a quote a plank of the humanist manifesto quote, a socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. What does that mean?
1: That this is, this is Marxism. Uh, and you could also see here, uh, probably the earliest trends of globalism, too? You can
2: I mean, at least you can't say they weren't straightforward about what they believed. They, they were out there. Mm-hmm. It was a, sort of a closed community, but these were people of great influence, and they upturned America's education system. In fact, Dewey was also instrumental in founding uh, the NEA, the National Education Association, and all that single-handedly established the doctrine that that organization still adheres to today. In fact, he maintained, this is a quote, this is John Dewey, it is the business of those who do not believe that religion is a monopoly or a protected industry to contend in the interest of both education and religion for keeping keeping the schools free from what they must regard as a false bias.
1: So... Dewey's a smart man here. He looks at you know history, he sees American culture, he sees what has influenced the founding, he sees its results. And yet because of his own biases, <laughs> humanist biases, uh, he's trying to create a different society, uh, influence culture, and um, strategically uh, taking over the education system, because that's how you change culture and you change future generations. Um, And parents, uh, if you haven't heard yet about what the NEA is, that's the National Teachers Union. And you can just go up on their website and read some of their business items. Every year they vote on business items and they are documented on their website. Um, Most of those business items have nothing to do anymore with education. They are all political Um, and ideological in nature. Yeah,
2: well, you know, the the groundwork had been laid uh, by Dewey and others, such that by the 1960s, opponents of the biblical worldview were ready to strike and strike they did, George. Uh, In 1962, the Supreme Court, in the famous case of Engel versus Vitale, ruled that any form of classroom prayer was unconstitutional. One year later, in another famous case, Abington School District versus Sheemp, the Supreme Court ruled that even the literal reading of the Bible in the schools is unconstitutional. Now there was one dissenting judge, and that was Just, Justice Potter Stewart, who wrote that uh, the Abington ruling didn't lead to true neutrality with respect to religion but to the establishment of a religion of secularism.
1: Mm, He got it.
2: He he completely got it. And secularism is a form of religion. It has its own dogma, its own requirements for how to live your life, and its own belief system. Um, It's definitely a religion, and it's the only one allowed in the public schools today. As the Wall Street Journal opined back there, secularism, secular atheism was now, quote, the one belief to which the state's power will extend its protections. So these things, George, in tandem with the progressive education movement and the conquest of the theory of evolution, virtually ensured to ensure that whole generations of American children would be indoctrinated with what had been just a short time before a decidedly un-American ideology. Such that by the 1960s, the triumph of secularization in America's public education system was complete.
1: Hmm. It's so sad to see one of the, the greatest uh, strengths of America now being completely demolished. Um, and And, you know, Two decades later, after these Supreme Court rulings, something interesting uh, was noted by a professor.
2: Yeah, the famous uh, University of Chicago professor, Alan Bloom, he wrote his uh, seminal book, The Closing of the American Mind, and that was in 1987. And uh, he, he made this famous statement in the opening words of his book. There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes the truth is relative. Now think about that, George. 1987, we've had several generations of young Americans come through the primary and secondary education system Mm -hmm. since these words were written. And if they had been secularized by 1987, is it any wonder why our country is in the shape it is today, given the education that they're receiving in the public schools?
1: And for our listeners, uh, if you were able to listen our episode 23 last week, together with episode 24 this week, uh, we felt it was very important to share this history with you, uh, because that really gets to... Our action and why we believe certain actions must be taken, and why we strongly encourage parents to take these actions. And um, mark one of the um, the things that we always say with protect our kids at our conferences, uh, speaking engagements, uh, is. The message, get out now, but let's unpack that so parents understand what we mean by it, because um, there are certain things that we mean and we don't mean by it. First and foremost, what we don't mean, we don't mean teachers, Christian teachers to get out now. We need Christian teachers as missionaries in the public school system to be able to uh, speak truth and impart truth to uh, these impressionable children and to also uh, stand against the the evil, Uh, all this new curriculum. Um, you know, over and over I hear from talking with teachers that there's no way we can get through all 600 pages in this book. So we have to make a judgment on what we look at, what we don't. And and so you become a filter for this. Um, but what we do mean by get out now is the students, the children they are the most important to be evacuated or airlifted or extracted out of this public education system because we're seeing the detrimental effects.
2: In fact, George, as you pointed out in our last conference that we held, there's a famous quote quote in this book by by the authors. Uh, They say, we send missionaries to cannibals. We don't feed them our boys and girls. Unfortunately, that was the conclusion of their, their study, and that's where this term came from. It's this book written by uh, Teresa Farnan and Mary Rice Hassett, Get Out Now, and they said the public school system is essentially irredeemable to save your children in the near future by you know, the next 10 or 20 years. This is going to be a decades-long process, so if you can get them out, you should certainly do that. But there's one other action that Uh, Interested citizens and concerned citizens, and certainly parents should consider.
1: Yeah, and that is to run for school board. And that, when we're now talking about the adult world. There's no children involved. That's an action that any concerned citizen can take. You don't have to be a parent. Uh, you, you just have to be a concerned citizen in your school district. Make sure you understand uh, the rules within your school district, what district boundaries and internal sub-boundaries there might be. Uh, but we highly encourage you to do that because boards vote on curriculum, boards vote on What makes it into the school or not?
2: The the school board is the key key decision uh, uh, institution for what happens in in the local school. So if you want to make an immediate impact, um, if you have time on your hands and information, this is the time to get involved. Run for school.
1: Board. And we encourage you here in, in our closing statement to go and visit our website at www.protectourkidsnow.org. And you can find out a lot more information about who we are, what we do. Um, and of interest, go to the brochures tab and our videos tab for more information. See you next time.